words matter. And it seems lately that communication is becoming a lost art. Do you feel that way in, in, our, in our media, in our macro discourse, and in families and be- between individuals? It just seems like it's harder and harder to communicate. Uh, communication is, is hard at the very best. It's always difficult. But uh, it seems like lately it's, it's becoming more and more difficult. Uh, if you think about it, it's amazing how much we actually receive in any given conversation. I don't know if you if you had that experience. You know, sometimes it's just it's a, you're trying to say something, you're trying to get it across, and it's just not getting through. Or later on in the conversation, you realize that you didn't get that point across. It didn't make uh, the impact, or it didn't have the uh, the uh, whatever you were trying to get across, and. It's, it's difficult under the best of circumstances to communicate person to person. That's under the best of circumstances. But then when the emotions are running high, when there are hardened and entrenched opinions, well, then we can just sort of forget about it because it's, it's impossible, it seems, to get something across. As a counselor, uh, this is something that I run across all the time. You know, I'll be sitting, and especially if it's couples counseling, and just watching the the conversation between the two. And it's amazing. You can really literally watch the words change meaning in the air from one person's lips to the other person's ears. And you know how difficult it must be for them, even when there's not a third party present. And then just trying to get these things across. It's, it's, it's really a hard task that we have. Words matter, but words have limits. There's only so much that we can really get across to each other. Um, Marion and I have, have pretty much self-diagnosed me, and uh, <laughs> we're realizing that, that I'm a little bit Aspie, a little bit Asperger's. It, it's interesting because we're, we're seeing it in, in our two sons, and as we were going through the research and, and uh, looking at that and realized, oh my God, that's every, every bank of, of you know, tests is like, well, that's me, especially as, as a youngster, as a child, I could see that. And so I realize now why it was so hard for me to, to read people. To, I was missing social, social cues, and I was missing um, body language and expression and all that. And I had to work hard, especially, I guess, you know, 20 years of being a pastor will, will kind of learn you up because this is constantly what I'm doing. And, and reading people, it's, it's, uh, there's so much that is being communicated without the words, and yet there's so much that's still miscommunicated. And so, don't even get me started on texting an email now. And that's the other thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's so difficult to communicate there. I get teased a lot because I still text in complete sentences and use actual grammar. And, and so, there's a subculture that's developing in texting and an email. And, and I just, you know, okay, here's my English teacher rant. I used to be an English teacher. We're losing our language, it feels like. It feels... And I know languages evolve, and they're supposed to move and, and shift from generation to generation. But it seems like there is this the, a coarsening. There's, there's a loss of nuance and, and uh, shades and depth of meaning that, that I see going on. And so, once again, this idea of communication being a difficult thing to do. Hard enough when we're talking about relationships, when we're talking about maybe finances, or maybe we're talking about parenting talking about politics, of course. But when it gets to religion, 
it even gets harder. And that even pales in comparison to when we're actually trying to communicate about authentic spirituality. That's a whole other ballgame. Because spiritual issues literally can't be put into words. If we're talking about spirit, we're talking about something that stands outside of space and time, something that stands outside of the logic and the reasoning that is the basis of our language and the basis of our communication with each other. And so this is really, really difficult for us to be able to communicate spiritual issues because as soon as we put them into words, we're changing them. But we have to. Words are all we have. So we're going to do our best with language to try to express the inexpressible. Spirituality really is inexpressible. But we're going to do it anyway. But it would be good, as we do, to remind ourselves that when we're talking about spiritual issues, we're really only giving an approximation. We're doing the best that we can to try to get something across that can't be gotten across. So it's an an approximation, this best expression of the inexpressible. Here's the problem. Within religious circles, though, we talk about spiritual issues, we talk about our religion and, and theological issues in terms of it being absolutely concrete, in terms of it being settled debate. And that's where things start to go all haywire. Because we start to use words carelessly. We start to use words uh, imprecisely as they are relating to spiritual issues. And then some of these phrases and some of these, these um, definitions or explanations we use, they stick. And then they become some sort of jargon or even a platitude within our faith. They were true at the time a person actually experienced them. That's the thing about platitudes, you know, all the Hallmark card platitudes. They're true, but they're also completely unhelpful at the same time. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> because they were true at the time that they were experienced by the person, and then they expressed the inexpressible as best they could. But when it hit the ears of a person who didn't have the same experience, then they had to try to estimate, they had to try to interpret, translate, the meaning of that expression into their own lives and into their own experience. And whatever they got from the the communication is what they got, but it may have had nothing to do with what actually was the initial experience that the person had. So, if you think about it, let me use this example. When I was a child, I grew up in the Catholic school. I grew up in the Catholic church. Uh, in first grade, was it first, third grade, when we were preparing for first communion, one of the nuns told us, make sure you never take communion when you have a cold because you might cough and spit up the baby Jesus. Okay, so... Now, there's, there's a truth in there. There... There is a reverence for the sacrament that the nun was trying to get across to us youngsters. But the way that she chose to express that, imagine the imagery. Imagine the pressure on the little kid, you know, and and the baby Jesus. Oh, my gosh. We use phrases, we use words like this, and we don't have a sense of what it's going to be doing in the mind or the heart of the listener as we go through. And that's what I wanted to talk about. When I first hit the evangelical church, 
um, there was a gap of about 10 years from Catholicism to, to moving into evangelicalism. I was instructed in all sorts of ways. I was advised in all sorts of ways. I was exposed to a whole different type of language and vocabulary uh, in this church. And not only did this advice, did these instructions have no meaning, what I imagined they meant was much more destructive because I was trying to do something that probably had, and now I realize, had nothing to do with the original intent of the instruction. And with my Aspie sort of hyper-intellectual approach to life anyway, you know, I was trying to understand each one of these spiritual sayings, each one of these spiritual phrases in a completely rational and intellectual way, taken at face value. And what the, uh, the meaning was implied to me, it was mystifying and it was terrifying because I didn't know how to do what they were telling me to do. I had no clue how to go about doing what they were asking me to do. And yet the implication was that if I didn't do it, I was unacceptable to God. And so here's all this pressure because I wanted to do it, but I had no idea how to go about it. And so I tried to comply in the only way I knew how which was this absolutely rational way of thinking really hard. Let's see if I can think about this enough. See if I can get this somehow tamped down into my head in a way that I actually believed it, and then I just tried to obey. I tried to do literally what they were telling me to do. As I moved on, what came to my rescue was understanding a Hebrew Jesus to start studying the words that Jesus said from a different point of view that was closer to the experience. Eastern languages are closer to the circular way, the holistic way that spirituality is experienced in our lives. And to get it from that point of view was starting to do some work in me that I wasn't even aware of at the beginning. And then connecting that with a contemplative way of living life, a nonverbal, non-rational approach to God, just a being, just a, a, a sitting and resting in God, and not always hyper-focused on words, on theology, and on spoken practice or ritual. That started to change things. It gave me a way of living life that was concrete, and not a concrete way of thinking about that life. And that was all the difference that I needed, all the difference in the world. Let me see if I can be more specific and try to explain what what it is I'm talking about. If you uh, take a look at your, your inserts you've got in there, I broke down some of the things that were told to me, some of these expressions, uh, some of this Christianese, if you will, or these jargons uh, that, that were instructions and advice to me that I had no clue. And let's see if we can reset them so that we can actually use the truth that is there. And so in three different ways, we've got faith and trust, relationships and decision-making, three central issues in our lives. So one of the ones that I heard all the time was just give it over to the Lord. You all heard that one before? Give it over to the Lord. It's uh, connected to the last one, let go and let God, right? Give it over to the Lord. What does that mean? What does it mean to give it over to the Lord? See, at the time, I had no idea. I could understand what they meant. Take the control away from myself and give it to God. All right, 
sure, that makes perfect rational sense. How in the world do I do that? You know, I'm, I'm prone to depression in my life. And so I get depressed and inevitably someone would come up and say, just snap out of it. You know, if anyone says that to you, you have my permission to slap them right across the face. If you're depressed, how do you snap out of it? Don't you think if I knew where the light switch was for my depression, I would throw it? Come on. You know, inside that bubble, there is no way to be able to just straightforwardly move out. And so I looked at this and said, I'm supposed to give it over to God. How do I do that? Where is that particular switch? You know, and then I'd hear people say, well, I gave it to God, but then I took it back. (laughs) Okay, what does that mean? Well, it means that you really didn't give it in the first place. See, the, the words are slippery. The words kind of move us all over the place, and we don't really know what they mean. The next one, just trust God. Okay, that sounds great. How do I do that? Do I just grunt really hard and think really hard and just talk myself into believing that I trust God? But the stress is still there. The anxiety is still there. The worry is still there. So how is it that I'm trusting God? How am I exactly supposed to do that? Well, you just need to have more faith, brother. Oh, good. Now I got guilt. I got guilt because the doubt is still there. Because the depression is still there. The anxiety and the stress is still there. Well, you just got to have more faith. Well, again, how do I do that? I believe, I believe, I believe. Help my unbelief, right? Right out of the book. How do we have more faith? Well, you surrender more of your life to Jesus. (sighs) Same problem. Let go and let God. I was just talking to someone, uh, was that just yesterday? Gosh, time is going fast. Yeah, it was just yesterday. And I met him in the parking lot, and we're just standing there talking, and he is going through a terrible time in his life. And uh, actually, his son is in prison right now, and there's nothing he can do for him. But he said, you know what? I don't even want to see him. I don't even want to go visit him. He says, I feel really guilty about that. I said, well, is there anything you can really do to help him? He says, no, there's nothing right now. I said, well, then you've got to let go of the guilt. As soon as the words left my mouth, I realized I'm telling him to snap out of it. I need to get slapped across the face. You know? Yeah, just let go of the guilt. It's so easy to say. It rolls right off the tongue. And yes, it's absolutely true and absolutely unhelpful at the same time. So I caught myself and I said, okay, you know, I just told you something that's impossible to do unless you understand how do you let go of guilt? Well, every time that you become aware that you are wallowing in that guilt, you are spinning around the guilt. You're feeling bad. It is taking you away from the present moment, taking you away from the face that's right in front of you because you're guilting over the face that is not anymore. Then you stop and you come back. You literally take your brain and put it back on task. You look right into the eyes of the person that's right in front of you and you re-enter the conversation. You put your whole attention back into the work that you're doing and you focus there. And you displace the feelings of guilt. Now that's something we can do. That's something concrete. It's moment by moment. That doesn't mean that in the next 30 seconds the guilt is going to be back and you're going to be wandered off in that place again. And then as soon as you become aware of it, you do it again. And you do it again. And if you have to do it 100 times today, you do it 100 times today. Because tomorrow you'll only do it 95. And that's the way it works. To let go of the guilt is to moment by moment come back to the present moment, to focus on what is right in front of you, to realize that this moment, even though my son's in prison, is just enough. 
It's fine. It's perfect. If I will let it be. And then over time, you are changing the nature of the way that you're dealing with this particular issue. Now that's something that we can use. Take a look at Psalm 34, starting verse 1. I think this is exactly what David is saying here. And this is going to be the way that we can deal with faith and trust issues. Because to a Jew, to a Hebrew, faith is action. It's not thinking really hard. It's not believing with your mind. It's what you do, regardless of the presence of doubt. And so here's David. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. Those two lines say exactly the same thing. This is an example of Hebrew poetry, repeating rhyming concepts, if you will. I will extol the Lord Lord at all times. His praise will be always on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Take Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Taste and see. Not sit and think. Taste and see. See, to a Hebrew, the world is always looked at in terms of function over form. We as modern Westerners, we're always looking at what something looks like. We describe it in terms of of its, its appearance or in some abstract way. To a Jew, it's always about function. How does something function? If we're going to be faithful people, it's because we function as faithful people, not because we have pious faces on, not because we think faithful thoughts. It's going to be what we actually do at all times. Taste and see. And think about that. To see something in action is to prove to yourself that it it exists. It exists as itself. We rely primarily on sight. But sight can be done from a distance. We can look through a telescope and see something really remote and be convinced of it. But when you taste it, something fundamentally changes. To taste it is to become intimate, to be absolutely as close as you can be to something, to have it inside your mouth. Taste and see. This is what David is trying to get across to us. It's a pattern of action. Look what he's talking here at the, very, at, at the beginning of each one of these stanzas. To extol, to seek, to taste, and to see. To extol is to praise. So, what is he doing? What is he talking about there? To, to praise God is to experience and feel gratitude for everything that he has given, for everything that he is. In this moment, to praise him, to remind yourself of the gifts that you've been given, to seek him, to bring awareness to every moment that we are living, to taste the intimacy, to bring it in, and to see which is the conviction. There's a formula here in Psalm 34 that David is giving us, a way of moving us into a faith place. 
And as we continue to make the choices to move, to extol, to seek, to taste, to see, we are getting an experience of God that is the trust that we all crave. Because trust can't be willed. It has to be experienced. We trust something because we have proven its trustworthiness to ourselves. The other person's trustworthiness has been proven to us over time because we tasted and we saw that the trust was there, the trustworthiness was there. Here is a way of looking at these. Just give it to the Lord. Trust God. Have more faith. Surrender your life. All these are great things. Let go and let God. They're great. If we understand them in this particular way, if it's just a mental exercise, we're just going to be banging our head against the wall and never knowing if we ever got to the place that we're supposed to get. I certainly didn't. But as soon as we taste and see, as soon as we spend those moments in gratitude and awareness, then we start to understand. How do you know that you trust anything? When you stop worrying about it, when you stop thinking about it constantly, when you stop planning for it, when you stop breaking into someone's iPhone and looking at their text mail log, that's how you know that you trust when all of that goes away. In terms of trusting God, there's a general stress level that starts to drop in life. Even at the difficult times, yes, they still take our breath away. But there's a floor now to our depression. There's a floor now to our anxiety. And we know that we can move through, even though this is a really uncomfortable place to be. And we can start saying with David, yes, I called to the Lord and he answered me. This poor man, me, He saved. We can say that with David as we move through, even in the difficult times. Look at the next one. Relationships is basically what we're talking about. Ask Jesus into your heart. That's a key one, isn't it? I mean, we've all heard that one, right? You've got to ask Jesus into your heart. I did that so many times. I know that I've, I've, I've told this story before. Frank tells me he's heard every story I've ever told. I don't think that's true. And I'll, and I'll try to uh, <laughs> tell new ones every once in a while. But this one I'll never forget because I was at the, uh, the church that I went to, uh, the church I landed at, the evangelical church, and the uh, pastor did an altar call. And he said, anyone, just hold up your hand if you want to bring Jesus into your heart. And I had my hand up and tears were streaming down my face. I had my four-year-old daughter in my lap, and she was saying, Daddy, why are you crying? And uh, he noted me, and he said, he came up, there was a hand on my shoulder at one point, uh, and he whispered in my ear, just see me after the service. And I did, and we went into a side room, and he sat there and, and took me through the Lord's Prayer. And, and not the Lord's Prayer, the sinner's prayer. You know, And part of that was, Jesus, please come into my heart. And then he got up, and he was heading out the door. I said, wait a minute, what just happened here? You know, I don't feel any different. I said some words, I don't feel any different. And he didn't actually do it, but it's almost as if he looked at his watch and he dutifully came back to me and sat down. He said, the truth is, you've accepted Jesus into your heart. Feelings will come later. And he was gone. And I was sitting there thinking, okay, again, what just happened? I said some words. I don't feel any different at all. It feels like nothing has changed. How do I do this? How do I bring Jesus into my heart? Well, you need to be baptized in the Spirit. That was a big one. Are you baptized in the Spirit, brother? Sure, I don't know what that is. Okay, well, here's what you do. And and they would pray over me, and they'd lay hands on me. And I was trying so hard 
to be baptized in the Spirit. I didn't really know what that meant. Well, then do you pray in tongues was the next thing. And, and tongues in that church was kind of a proof that you were baptized in the Spirit. And so now I had all of this sense of failure because I couldn't pray in the Spirit. I couldn't speak in tongues. I tried so hard, but I had no concept of what they were talking about. Again, I was just trying to think through everything. With the words, with the rituals that they gave me to perform, but I didn't have the ability to be able to move into that place. But what they were really talking about was an intimacy that I had not experienced. What they were really talking about was something that goes beyond just thoughts in your head or words that you can say. And I didn't have the ability to deal with that. But take a look at Matthew 7. And this one always sounds so punitive, but really it's a beautiful passage because Jesus is trying to get something across really important to us here. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many other mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Okay, that that sounds pretty bad. You know, it's interesting. When I looked up lawlessness in, in the Aramaic lexicon to try to find out, the first entry for that word was child, babe, suckling infant, a colt, and then finally, you know, iniquity or lawlessness. What in the world does all that have to do with each other? It sounds so bad the way it's, it's translated here. I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of, of iniquity. You, you worker of lawlessness. But what the language is pointing to is a baby, a suckling infant, someone who is not yet capable of doing what a human being is supposed to do, not yet capable, capable of the kind of intimacy, the kind of relationship That knowing implies, and knowing in Hebrew, yada, is not mental understanding. It's intimacy again. It's long-standing familiarity. It's connection on a day-to-day basis. That's what all of this is about. And so bringing Jesus into your heart is tied to the idea of living with him day in and day out. It's tied to the notion of communion that we just experienced here this morning, where we actually bring into ourself everything that Jesus is. We let that change us from the inside out. Our desires become the same as God's desires. What animates us, what gives us pleasure and delight is the same thing that gives God pleasure and delight. You know, as an English teacher, the greatest thrill I had greatest thrill I had was to see a light bulb go on over a kid's head. To see that moment where you see in their eyes, they get it. They get the concept. I can't tell you how satisfying that is to this day when someone says, you know, I never thought of it that way before. That's like the greatest compliment. I never thought of it that way before. I take such delight in that. I I don't teach in order to get a blue ribbon about teaching. It's just that moment of connection, that moment of understanding is everything. What is God's greatest desire and delight? Well, it's sort of the same thing. It's unity. It's connection. It's having that completely transparent relationship. When that means as much to you as it does to God, then it orders everything that you do. Every choice you make, every word out of your mouth is going to be with that 
in mind. Is this word I say, is this choice I make going to bring these relationships closer together that are right in front of me, or is it going to blow them apart? And our choices are ordered that way. Everything is informed by that. This is the process. It's not about the works that we do, the accomplishments we make. It's not even about the abilities we have to speak in tongues or not. Speaking in tongues is a beautiful thing, but it's a byproduct of the full abandonment that you feel inside, where whatever comes out, comes out. It's just kind of letting it go. I was never able to do it, by the way. I could sing in tongues, but I couldn't speak in tongues. Just some glitch in my system, I suppose. But it's not necessary. It's a way that we can express this kind of relationship. But it's not the only way. But this is something that we can do. This is something that we can have. It has teeth and traction for us to be able to more and more model the choices we make on the unity that it creates in the relationships around us. Nonverbal intimacy is what we're talking about. Not about words, not about rituals, but about just pure connection. And then how do we make decisions? How do we make decisions that are going to go in directions that we think God wants us to go? Well, you pray about it. Have you heard that one? So you ask someone to do something, I'll pray about it. Someone was saying, that means not a chance. (laughs) I'll pray about it. But what it implied to me, and I suppose it implies to all of us, is that if I ask God a specific and rational question, that I'm going to get a specific and rational answer. And that is the most frustrating way to pray because God doesn't give specific and rational answers. And if you think you've heard one, how do you distinguish between the own voice in your head and God's voice? I've had so many people tell me, God told me to absolutely do this. In fact, I have a friend who told me, God told me to build a island-themed massage parlor and tanning salon in a shopping mall in Minnesota. He was absolutely certain. He bet the house on it. He bet everything on it. And he ended up losing everything. And he couldn't figure out why because he was so sure that God told him to do this because he prayed about it. And then he asked all of us to pray about it too when it started going south. How do we make these distinctions if we're looking for rational answers in words, in our minds, as we ask God for rational answers? And I was doing this to beat the band. I was praying to God, please show me what I'm supposed to do. Show me the way. And I couldn't be certain of anything that I was getting. You need to know God's will for your life. It's basically another way of saying the same thing. And so we are obsessed with finding, because God has a plan for you, finding out what this plan is, figuring it out and executing it perfectly. But God's not telling us. So what an exercise in frustration that is. To come to understand that there's a difference between the what and the how really is what helped me delivered me from that particular hamster wheel going around and around and around. You know, this per- this pressure to fulfill something that I didn't even understand and I didn't know. And yet, at the same time, God is always telling us how to live, how to live in relationship, how to treat each other, how to be in relationship with Him. How to spend our moments is something that comes off of every page of Scripture and out of creation itself. That we can do. Take a look at Romans 8, starting at verse 26. 
The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. That's a lot of words there. It doesn't immediately make sense. There's a lot of it in there that is also going to be not too helpful until we break it down a little bit. Paul is offering us trying to describe a different kind of prayer. It's not the rational prayer that we're used to. It can't be put into words, and it certainly can't take the form of a petition as we understand that, a specific rational request. He's talking about a prayer of unknowing. He's talking about just letting yourself move into a space so that the Spirit can actually pray for you. Even in just groans and, and nonverbal you know, sounds and utterances, God already knows what we need. God is praying through us in a way. If we just allow ourselves to be sort of along for the ride, it, yes, it's a relinquishment of control. Yes, it's an acceptance of dependence, an acceptance of submission. But it's a whole different way of navigating this space, laying down the control, laying down the future tripping, laying down the obsession over the outcome, and just being involved in the process and seeing what happens. And all things are going to work together for the good, for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. You know, once again, how do you love God? How do we do that? Fortunately, Paul defines it in the next line. Love God and have been called according to his purposes. There it is again. The will of God, sebyana in Aramaic, means pleasure, delight, and deepest purpose. When we have become aligned with God's deepest purpose, we are loving God. There really is no other way to love God or love anybody else, anything else, if you will until we are completely identified with the beloved, connected. How do you know you're in love at all? You know you're in love when you've dropped all your defenses, when all the walls come down, all the barriers come down, and there is just a transparency. You don't even know where you end and the other begins. To be called according to the purpose is to move into the same space that God occupies to be animated by the same essence that God is animated by. And then everything starts to change. Things do work out, but not the way you planned. But they will work out as long as we keep breathing and we keep showing up to our moments. If you notice, the way of living is the same in all of these various three areas. It's all about showing up. And that's the beauty It gets so complicated so fast. But if we realize there's only one thing that we need to do, we just need to show up presently, awarely, connectedly, and things start to happen. Things start to change. And then we will have an experience that makes all of these platitudes, all of this jargon, all this Christianese make absolute perfect sense. We know that it's true but not in the way that we had imagined it when we first heard the words. One more, and I don't have it down there for you because I ran out of space, but 
Paul is saying the same thing at Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's the same thing. It's the process of the way through. It's not an event. We can't just think it and make it so. But as we show up over and over again to our moments, things change. We see things differently. We understand. The platitudes are true. Who knew? But it has to be experienced in order to see the truth. They were true when they were spoken by someone who had experienced the truth, remember? And they used these words to best express this inexpressible experience of their truth. But then we, without the experience, hear the words. We read the words of Scripture. But without the experience, we can only try to imagine what they might mean. We have to take the platitudes, take these phrases and words that are giving us so much trouble, and kind of like freeze-dried food, put it back into the hot water of our lives and let it reconstitute. Let it become real again. Let it become the truth again that we can actually see and taste and experience that's going to change the nature of what we do. It's so important for us to make this main graduation from sitting and thinking to tasting and seeing. When you take that step, when you engage in this experiential journey, that's when things start to move in new directions in your life. That's when Jesus starts to make sense. Paul makes sense. The contemplatives make sense. Maybe even evangelicals make sense. How about that? I wanted to read one last thing. It's a a journal entry. And uh, when I was so struggling through this, This is going to be 25 years ago, almost exactly. It's dated Monday, December 13th, 1993, at 9.30 a.m. See, I told you I was obsessive. There's this limit to what we can communicate with words. There's a sense of solitariness sometimes as we live our lives because we can't fully communicate to another person. And that can be frustrating. It can feel lonely at times. But we break through also, and we're going to break through at these moments that we're talking about where we just show up, just show up. I wrote, I'm thinking we never really know anyone. Not really. Not ever. Not here. We can talk and share, but words can only penetrate so far. We can experience and live together. But the eyes of the beholder transform every piece of reality into an intensely personal experience that can never self-exist in expression but remains locked in the mind and the heart of each of us. We never see things exactly the same, and we can never express the difference. I remember when I was playing football in high school, the sensation of feeling isolated from my teammates during practices and games. Guys I knew so well day in and day out were simply red helmets and white padded uniforms that I interacted with. There were no faces or expressions or personal cues. What they were thinking, what they felt, What hurt was locked inside those helmets, just as my thoughts and hurts and feelings were. We were a team of individuals, inscrutable, 
but still forming a cohesive and effective whole, at least on a superficial level. We go through our lives like this, locked within the human uniforms of our bodies. We look into each other's eyes, we talk, grasp, hold on to each other, but there is a line within us that no one can cross. It's the price of our individuality that we prize so highly, yet spend our lives trying to overcome in the intense desire to connect with someone, to be not alone. There are moments, moments when the barriers go down. They can't be planned or manipulated. They happen spontaneously during conversation, prayer, when we expand beyond the limits of our uniforms to encompass more than we are. We look into the soul of another or touch the mind of God. And then we are alone again, searching for the next such moment. That will be heaven, the permanence of those moments of true connection. But for now, only one being can know us, can know me completely, and that is you, Father. My aloneness in this life is my assurance that I will be driven to you, because only you can fill the place that is empty, and only you carry the promise of eternal filling. So, Lord, I will continue to reach out to you and my fellow creatures to nurture the feeling of unity at one level without despairing over the separateness at another. I'll treasure the moments of contact when they come and ride the raft of my faith in between. And always keep my face to the wind of your spirit, the promise of an eternity together. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we do feel alone. Sometimes we feel the separation. And sometimes we feel the weight of all the decisions we need to make or circumstances around us. Help us like David to just come back to ground, praise you with gratitude, seek your face with awareness, and taste and see that you're here and that you're good and that you're always on our side. Help us to instinctively just come back and do that. Help us to let go of the other things that distract and overwhelm. Help us keep it simple, Lord. Simply you. Simply now. Simply each other. We want to know you with all that can possibly mean. So help us right now to make the choice to be here and to grasp your spirit in a way that we didn't think was possible with our heads. Father, thank you. Thank you for the connection. Thank you for the love and the provision. Thank you for communion this morning and every one of our connections here in our community. Thank you for the provision that you've given us the ability to carry on. It's all here. It's all now. And never let us forget, we can only love in any way because you loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, let's all stand.